Oh, your cat on the counter in the background. Oi, Which Teddy. one is that? <laughs> if you just yell normal voice, he doesn't like, so I have to go, get down. Like a... It worked. Yeah. He immediately got down. I, I love that so much because I feel like the, the stereotypical pet voice is like, oh, boop, 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 boop. But yours is like, get down. <laughs> yourself. Be gone. <laughs> Hello, welcome to Let's Learn Everything, the podcast where we learn about anything and everything interesting. This episode, as always, we're going to be looking at a big science topic, asking and hopefully answering a science question, and we're going to be looking at a little miscellaneous topic as well. My name is Caroline, and this week's big science topic is going to be learning all about the facts and the fiction of female birth control. Ooh, yeah! Ooh. Okay, this is really interesting. Um, it's not complete. You'll see. Okay. Anyway, okay. go I'm on. I'm very excited. I feel like the uh, the previous pregnancy test episode, I learned both a lot about deep science stuff, and then also some stuff that I don't know as a cisgender man. Uh, so I am, I am uh, very, very excited for this. I feel like this is always. I, this is also one of those topics that I feel like. Um, I don't know, like people don't want to talk about. And so I am very excited to to talk about there it. There were moments in this where I was like writing this being like, do I like, how do I phrase this? How do I make sure people aren't uncomfortable with it? And then was like, no, I'm not going to think like that. I'm just going to mm, write the sentence yeah. and everybody can sit in the uncomfortableness together. Hopefully get used to it a little bit. Hopefully get over it Everyone a little can, bit. Can be a, yeah, exactly. It can be a grown up. So, yeah, it. totally. Yeah. I'm still going to make some jokes, I'm sure. Of course. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> My name's Tom. <laughs> and today's science question is, what are the two highest points on Earth? Uh -huh. And to be clear, I'm not talking about the highest and second highest. I'm talking about two points that are both the highest. Wait, what? Okay. <laughs> I'm confused, but I'm excited about it anyway. Yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> My name's Ella, and today's miscellaneous topic is menstruation products oh interesting amazing so there's a little I bit of overlap that we here both. i don't think we should overlap too much but thematically yeah. we're very similar I think, well, me too, how much also. of the history are you going to be talking about a good chunk but there isn't that much yeah me too yeah me too yep. <laughs> uh -huh. caroline and i have come in here today with the explicit intention of making tom feel as uncomfortable yeah. as possible <laughs> oh my god i love this for us yay <laughs> <laughs> I was scrolling through the Forbidden Bird app. <laughs> I often, I oft, I'm often spending my time this way. And I saw some absolutely absurd claims about female birth control. Oh, oh boy. Specifically the pill. Okay. You know what? I'll, I'll tell you what I saw. I saw somebody claiming that the pill had turned them into a lesbian. And I was just like, <laughs> that's a rabbit hole that I can get behind. You know, I was just like, oh, that's that's it right there, isn't it? Yeah, it's true. The pill, the pill made me bisexual. Yeah. That's because you took a half dosage, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to talk about some of the more absurd claims that are surrounding things like the pill. 
Admittedly, though, I have no real clue about the history of birth control or how we got hormonal birth control. I want to talk about the pill quite a lot. So I thought that we could do my favorite thing, which is look at the history <laughs> of birth control Yay! a little bit. Look at how we got to where we are now with the pill. And then look at some of my favorite true or falses surrounding the birth control. Oh, lovely. As well. How does that sound? It sounds lovely. Lovely is a weird word for this, but. (laughs) (laughs) Are you just going to talk about female contraceptive? Yes. Yes, I am in this one. I thought about talking about male contraceptives and it was just too much to put yeah, at the end of this one. I think that's fair. I'm very excited for this to be a, for this to be played in health classes across the nation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> does one of us have a banana? We can do the, the, the banana <laughs> thing that everyone does. We do the thing with the microphone. Oh, perfect. Ew. Okay. <laughs> that's some asmr that i don't think we need today all right to yeah honest. okay i've reached my tipping point let's go let's continue <laughs> it happened okay my first question for both of you surrounding this topic is when do you think birth control became a thing real early yeah no yeah i feel like this is like a uh, you know maybe not super effective but i i feel like this is a you know i think we said this previously on whenever we talk about like reproduction and stuff like that but like reproduction is like like the thing about uh like life and evolution so like i'm sure it must go back yeah but people didn't care about women so maybe it took quite a while (laughs) Mm -hmm, interesting um so here's what i'm thinking hormonal birth control the the pill Mm. or the implant the first hormone ever isolated was insulin Mm -hmm. that that also didn't happen until the 1920s so the very earliest holy wow like you're talking like post 1920s for like hormonal birth control i mean if you're talking if you consider contraception condoms then much much earlier they, I think uh-huh. they used to use yeah. like sheepskin and stuff mm-hmm. like it was like ha- a haggis condom you know <laughs> Tom do you know what haggis is yeah it's the condom okay, material <laughs> it's, it's like meat in a sheep yes, intestine yes, yes. Yeah. Stuff, I don't know. it's yes, actually really yes. nice yeah I love a bit of haggis oh. I'm shocked that neither of you went to the immediate answer that is always... Are we going to say ancient Egypt? Ancient Egypt. Some of the earliest forms of contraception that we have, I'm not talking about hormonal necessarily, but things like barrier methods, spermicides, things Mm, like that, mm, date mm, back mm. to ancient Egypt. Once yeah, again, cool. because of course they do. Yeah. So a 1994 article of all things in the New York Times suggests that historians have long known that the ancient Egyptians, Greeks and Romans purposely limited the sizes of their populations. Women in ancient Egypt, Greece and Rome married shortly after they were physically able to become pregnant and in theory spent 20 to 30 years of their lives vulnerable to pregnancy after pregnancy. Mm-hmm. So obviously these groups of people would need ways to limit their population sizes, but also limit the risk of being pregnant again and again and again. Yeah. And Tom, do you want to have a bit of a guess about what they might have used as a contraception? Thinking like barrier method, maybe, spermicide, in that sort of field. Yeah, I mean, the one that we all know works the best is abstinence. So I'm imagining that's what they... <laughs> works the best. Uh-huh, 100 The only one that worked 100% <laughs> of the such time. A, such a bold that's statement. the podcast's <laughs> official stance. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> 
<laughs> no. Um. Okay, let me let me talk about some of the first written down examples we have of contraceptives. So the wow. there's the Ebers papyrus. It's spelled E B E R S papyrus. That's from 1550 BC. No way. And there's the Cahun papyrus, K A H U N, which is from 1850 BC. Are they really gonna say? Yeah. <laughs> So I'm excited. Those are the earliest like written evidence we have of uh, like birth control methods. We think that other things might have predated this, but this is what we've got like physical written down evidence of things that we used. It's I think it's worth saying the reason why the history always goes back to ancient Egypt with Ooh, these yeah. things is because we have so many written records from that time. Yeah. That's like yeah. the earliest ancient uh-huh. time we have lots of written records for. So the chances are these things did start much sooner. Absolutely. But, you know, yeah. There you go. No, such a good point. So yeah, within these papyruses, methods such as blocking the entrance of the cervix with lint and acacia leaves to physically hmm. prevent sperm from entering. So a barrier method. They They knew... They had the foresight to know what the cervix was. They had the... Yeah. Yeah. I think that that kind of knowledge must have been lost in between ancient Egypt and like medieval times. We'll we'll talk about that a little bit. That's a great point. Yeah. What do you think might have happened in that time? Uh, The Catholic Church. (laughs) The Catholic Church. You're absolutely right. Yeah. We'll talk about what the Catholic Church did because it was... Oh, it was a choice from them. <laughs> but yeah, the, these that makes perfect sense. And, yeah. and that's that's why. So so wait, these were like manuscripts just like being like, hey, hey, here's how you do it. Here's like, how you do here, it. Here, yeah. here, pro tip. Here's what you need to do if you are engaging in sexual intercourse and you don't want to have a baby. And I have to say the the, the fact that it, it was written down implies a something more to it than just like that they did it right the fact that they were like teaching it to people or the fact that they were the sharing of knowledge they wanted exactly that's what it is yeah Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it appeared to be almost encouraged to do this i can imagine which is it makes so much sense it like you know it's something that we do now (laughs) just imagine just imagining just imagining i'm sorry just imagining like an uh, ancient egyptian dorm room and like the ra is like handing out like uh, these leaves (laughs) these palm leaves and being like hey i'll keep a door i'll keep a bucket outside of my door you just let me know (laughs) (laughs) okay so yeah they used physical barrier methods along with inserting things like honey and acacia gum into yeah into the vagina but we know that this actually did work as a spermicide of sorts apparently this concoction would ferment into lactic acid which literally just killed Uh, the sperm uh, i mean uh Oh, did it, did it mean, ferment inside of the vagina? Either before being inserted or, yes, inside of the that's vagina. That's grim. I'm sorry, that's grim. The pH <laughs> that that's going to cause for you. Like, Ooh. that's not good. You have to keep that space, man. Yeah, so that was one technique that was used. And then you're just, like, fermenting sugars. I'm sorry, yeah, this is really not sugars. good. Yeah. <laughs> Ancient Egyptian women were getting yeast infections. Oh, like so left, many. Like left, right, and right? center. Sure. Oh, boy. <laughs> it's about to get so much worse. We're nearly, we're nearly there. Other techniques that might have worked was breastfeeding for long periods of time after birth. 
Turns out you're unlikely to have periods if you breastfeed exclusively. So only give your baby breast milk. Uh, like up until your baby is six months old. And because of this, some women, some women used breastfeeding as a form of a natural contraception. This is actually, we still use this as a birth control method now. It's called the lactational amenorrhea method or LAM. Okay. That's wild. Yeah, it's really cool. Ancient Egyptian people were known to breastfeed for up to three years after the birth of their child, which probably wasn't the most effective method after so long, but it probably helped at least for the first six months. Right. That's so interesting. I can't believe yeah. like... Yeah. And it, again, it is one of those things where it's like, this sounds so like clearly there's experience and and, yeah, and, and, uh-huh. and and practice. But then again, it is again, like literally the thing that humans have been doing since they were humans, right? right? Yeah. Is, is, is this. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the techniques that we know definitely didn't work was the insertion of crocodile dung into people's vaginas, oh, which was another right. method outlined in the Cahun Papyrus in 1850 BC. Oh, oh, oh no. Boy. That doesn't... Oh, no. <laughs> oh, That's, boy. It's not good. I think no. some of this was used as a barrier method, but also because it was viewed as like a symbolic animal to ancient Egyptians. So sure. the insertion okay. of that dung into the vagina would have had some sort of religious connotation as well. I mean, I might need to retract some of the praise for them for not understanding that feces being inserted (laughs) into you is not good. Um, gets worse. We also think that the Mesopotamians might have done something similar, as well as some groups in Asia using elephant dung. Again, as like a religious thing, as well as a barrier method. Mm. Around the same time, contraceptive methods were also being used in ancient China. In the form of mercury. No, no. Specifically drinking mercury. Good. Well, you know what? It is a form of contraceptive because you can't get pregnant when you're dead. (laughs) (laughs) It It is one of those things where it's like... It's kind of like a step towards the concept of science and and oral contraception, but Uh it is also simultaneously a step in the wrong direction. It's so bad. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Flow, which is a period tracking app. Oh, they let you do mercury. (laughs) They also let you track. Please do not drink mercury. That would be a bad thing for you to do. Yeah. Flow released an article talking about the history of birth control and they say, unfortunately, these poisonous substances would also lead to kidney and lung failure as well as brain damage. But they yeah. did work with birth control, which was the funniest article I read. Are you read. fucking kidding me? Wow. That's fully, yeah. I mean, I assume that's one of the, the things to shut down in your body. Right, yeah, it's the like, yeah, not, was it great. birth control or was it just because you were like sterilizing yourself through extreme <laughs> metals? Breaking down your, 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 yeah. your vital organs. Yeah. <laughs> we skip forward a little bit to medieval Europe. And thanks to the Roman Catholic Church, contraceptions and abortions do wind up being banned. And sex is sort of declared as this thing that should only happen for procreation purposes. Could you imagine what a, what a medieval country you would have to live in for, for contraception to be outlawed by certain states? I mean, I mean, um, oh, certain that? hamlets and provinces. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> My favorite tidbit of information that I learned during researching this section was... They call it a bull. I'm going to refer to it as like a bill or a proclamation in Mm -hmm. 1487 by Pope Innocent VIII, in which he recognizes the existence of witches 
and gave permission for people to be punished <laughs> for witchcraft. Nice. In the bull or in this bill proclamation, which is sometimes referred to as the witch bull of 1484, the witches are explicitly wow. accused of having slain infants yet in the mother's womb, aka abortion, and of hindering men from performing the sexual act and women from conceiving aka conception god forbid anyone prevents a man from doing the sexual <laughs> act <laughs> good lord well if you yeah. remember the halloween our first halloween episode when i talk about the witch burnings being linked yeah. to capitalism yeah. uh-huh. one of the things that like older women in their community were often responsible for was like abortions was and yeah. and mm. providing like mm. general reproductive health and freedom to women mm-hmm. and as part of trying to control women you know they wanted to get rid of that that resource so a lot of those older mm. women would be mm. accused of being witches yeah. so yeah so fun. interesting no, so fun and funny hilarious that's when everything is such a fun and funny podcast <laughs> We're going to skip forward in time again. This is pre-colonized America. So where indigenous groups would also use Mm. contraceptives like herbs, extended periods of breastfeeding that we talked about earlier, Mm -hmm. and even the understanding of their own bodies and menstrual cycles as a birth control method. That's a great point. Yeah. So they could often tell based on the appearance of vaginal discharge when they were most and least likely to become pregnant. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Which is really cool. When colonizers did come to America, this information was shared herbal contraceptives and other type of birth control were widely banned in america still so european contraceptive knowledge in many cases was limited to the use of things like charms and amulets um Mm. (laughs) along with practices like bundling which is where couples in the early 18th century had to they had to travel quite a long distance to see each other often before they were wed and it wasn't always possible to make it back home in a single day so at bedtime you would be bundled together which means that you'd be put in a bed fully clothed separated by a board and possibly even sewn into a sack in order to prevent intercourse from happening wow (laughs) sorry i'm sorry that is a very cute word for a very weird thing it's so weird Um, so as you were saying I'm earlier, so, Tom, about so, so, abstinence, yeah? Yeah, uh-huh. so that's extreme. That's like the X Games of abstinence. Yeah. That's like <laughs> extreme. The, the abstinence industrial complex was like, you got to get these bags. They're guaranteed to prevent. <laughs> I'm, I'm just amazed, to Ella's point, the unlearning of all of this. Right. Like, to be like literally every community across the fucking world. Yeah. Uh-huh. Was doing stuff and then and Everyone then was doing and then... stuff which to an extent worked and they were using their observation skills and trying to figure out these skills. Yeah, and it's some real science to it. Yeah, some real science happening. Like like trying and practicing yeah. and observing and yeah. yeah. Doing all of those things and then doing a complete U-turn and banning it completely. And going back to this thing of, you know, people with uteruses being pregnant over and over again becoming like complicit with the idea that they're probably going to die during childbirth as well Mm. like this was something that had become Mm. so common at the time Mm. you know lots of people greatly feared becoming pregnant Mm. so when colonizers came to america and started learning about this information um i imagine it was rather liberating for them even if they caused so many issues in the process Mm. anyway it's so interesting And then moving on from that again, once enslaved people were brought over from various parts Mm, of the world mm. to America, 
contraceptives like cotton root and alum water were used quite a lot as well within those communities, within those groups. This was not only to prevent pregnancy from happening over and over again, but for more serious reasons as well. So things like denying those who had enslaved them the chance to profit off their children being born mm. and to avoid the grief and pain of having a child that was then enslaved and could be sold on to other enslavers. Mm. So it became mm. really, mm. really important for some groups to be having access to some sort of contraceptive care. Yeah. And once again, enslaved peoples would share this information, not just within the community, but with the white people that were enslaving them as well to try and mm. prevent wives and daughters from going through a similar thing as well, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, it, it, I'm, I'm hearing like echoes of communities using birth control as a means to push against society and against yeah. like the, the, the powers that be, which is yeah. very interesting. This, this it seems like a common trend. Yeah, absolutely. It went from this thing that everybody used or like to look after themselves and to look after each other to this thing that was banned to this thing that almost went against oppressors for a period of time. Mm, and I think mm. that's such an interesting journey for bodily autonomy to have gone through. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. There was a really interesting paper called Resisting Reproduction, Reconsidering Slave Contraception in the Old South, which was published in 2001. And that talks about some of the sources of the information I've just shared. So it's well worth a little read. That's in the show notes. So. That is a very rough history of the wide range of birth control methods that we used to use. But how did we get to where we are like right now with mm. 151 million people using the pill? Wow. 151 million? Yes. That's low. That it was around 20% of people who were of the age, or like menstruating age. Oh, I, I guess I'm thinking... 50% of the planet, I guess not all of them are menstruating age. There's about 30 mm. years, right? 36 yeah. years, 37 Absolutely, years, yeah. they say, is the, that age range. So, And around 20% of those people use the pill. So that is it's low, quite though. a lot, but it's not like... It is 151 million compared to the 7 billion people that are... I'm just thinking they're probably, there's probably still quite a lot of places in the world that don't have amazing access to these. Yeah, for sure. Um, 151 million people using the pill. Do you know how the pill works? Because that's what we're going to be focusing on now. Tom, do you know how the pill works? Hey. Yeah, I was I was laughing there because I know I know it so well. You do? Oh my god, I can't wait for you to explain. Uh, I, I take it I take I take it all the time just for fun. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I I take it because much like how it turns uh, women into lesbians, it keeps me straight. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the pill. I'm so glad you asked, Caroline. The uh -huh, pill. Uh -huh. So, what what do you know about the pill? Like all pill, Webster's Dictionary defines the pill as. Uh -huh. um, okay, I'm I'm gonna tr take a genuine educated guess yeah. now. I know you you only take it certain ones because the rest some of their sugar pills just to keep you in the the pattern of it. And yeah, I I know that I assume it uh, does a hormone thing. Uh -huh that jesus Tom. i'm gonna take like a wild guess that don't fuck off that like it, <laughs> it makes your body think that you are or are not pregnant or something like that and so oh oh and then and then it makes you shed the lining no that's thus a, making no. it no 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 fuck like tom what part of them is making the pregnancy happen? This is like they, it's they. like we're in a sex ed class with a sixteen year old. Can we not just? <laughs> do... 
This is the bit where they separate the boys and the girls. Yeah. And they're like, oh, we're going to tell you about the girls stuff. Yeah, and the boys watch like football. Yeah. So, can I guess, does it make the, 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 the area that the egg would go inhospitable for the egg? And so no. just. Uh, That's a really no. good guess. I think to you're thinking fair. too much about periods. Yeah. I think I probably am, yeah. In fact, a lot of contraception makes you stop your period for a lot yeah. of people. Because it is gotcha. doing the opposite. Like you said. I am mixing them up. I love, I I wish I could replay back in my mind that moment where you guys were so excited that I was very close and then I took a sharp left and veered <laughs> off the road entirely. You... <laughs> and then continued to bury my own grave in, in defense of trying to get back on course. <laughs> I think what I find frustrating about men not knowing about contraception mm -hmm. or periods or anything isn't the fact that like, it's not the fact that you don't know. It's the fact that I know about your your stuff that bothers yes, me because right. because I because I feel the need to know that so oh, I don't get pregnant. Yeah, yeah, uh huh. Yeah, and it, I'm sorry. It's not that's... a dig at you specifically, Tom. This is just the way things are. Yeah, you know. That's a but good I think point. That's yeah. If we neither of us knew about each other's, I mean, it's not great, but it's better yeah. than this other way around. Well, I think I know a lot about the other way around. Yeah, me too. Actually, oh, I feel yeah. like. Like when we were split off into two different groups, I feel like I was told everything. Yeah. And it's taken so much work to educate the men of every <laughs> background in my life about what's happening in my body. And it's so frustrating. I love the idea of me doing like a topic and being like, so do you guys know about testicles? <laughs> you guys yeah. be like, Yes, Tom. Yes, yes. yes. And yes, I'm like, do. and did so you much. know that this happens? And you guys are like, yes, yes, we all do know that. <laughs> we hear about them so much. Oh, please, that's a that's a really good point. Yeah. Okay. Um. Basically, there's the combination pill which has estrogen and progesterone in it. There's the progesterone only pill. It prevents the hormones needed for egg maturation and release mm. from. Mm being produced so it stops you from ovulating which is where your egg is released from your ovaries through the fallopian tube into your womb it can also thicken or increase the amount of mucus around your cervix so it can make it more difficult for sperm to get into your womb oh interesting which is really cool and if somehow you do get a fertilized egg on top of that it can thin out the lining in your womb mm -hmm, as well mm -hmm. to prevent the fertilized egg from like attaching on to begin the pregnancy. Hey folks, quick editor's note. Originally in the episode, we say here that taking the pill uses these hormones to make your body think that it's pregnant so it doesn't ovulate. But we got a note from listener Estrilda in the Discord, and we looked into it, and it turns out that that's actually a common misconception. Uh, apparently, it's much more accurate to say that the pill keeps hormones at a level where ovulation isn't triggered, which isn't the same thing as making you think you're pregnant. So we've removed that line, but everything else Caroline said, spot on. So back to the show. So yeah, so that is how the pill works. But how how did we how did we get there? I have a very quick little timeline of events leading up to the invention of hormonal birth control. Yeah. So in 1827, there is a major scientific breakthrough. Scientists <laughs> discover that the female egg exists. Okay. Whee! Are you fucking kidding yeah! me? 1827, I lads. <laughs> did okay, fine. Wow. 
we were aware wow. that semen must enter wow. the female body for conception to, to occur, but we did not know about the egg prior to this. I got, can I just say the order of operations here, I would never in a million years have, like the idea that contraception is so old, but the concept of the, of the egg is so recent. Especially since an egg is a single cell. They're like the yeah. only cell in the body that's visible to the human eye. That's yeah. a great point, Ella. Uh-huh. That's a great so we knew uh-huh. about all other kinds of ch- cells that you can only see in a microscope. We didn't know about this one. Right. Okay. Yikes. <laughs> yeah, that's a big yikes. Um, in 1843, it's confirmed that conception occurs in human reproduction when the sperm enters the egg. Holy Prior shit. Prior to this... It was assumed that men created life and women just provided a little hope. Holy right. shit. <laughs> Fuck me. Holy right? shit. I'm, right? I'm. Aristotle had like this idea of a homunculus, which is like he thought yeah. that there was like a very tiny person inside of the head of the sperm. And yeah. then that went into the into the uterus and just grew there, like from a tiny like speck. Yeah, that's and oh, and so the fact that so that was wild. still going, that that kind of For a concept a so similar time. to that was going thousands of years later is uh-huh. embarrassing. <laughs> Up to literally like Holy less than shit. what two hundred years ago, mm. that was the thought process that we had. I'm just, I'm just, yeah. <sighs> Tom's just processing everything. <laughs> well, I'm thinking two thoughts at the same time. The first thought is like, that seems like such a fundamental thing to me. Right? That seems so, that's like, that's like gravity. It's like one of those mm-hmm. things where it's like, but the other thing I'm thinking is that like, you would think that once we discovered this, once we realized the biology and the science to it, that we would be so okay with the concept of contraception that we're just like guys it's just like cells so can we just like manage the cells there's not not a ton political to that can we just just do that you know what (sighs) i'm a similar vein to that in the 1870s actually there was a wide assortment of birth control devices available in america such as condoms of sorts douching syringes diaphragms cervical caps and you could get them from everywhere. You could get them from catalogs, pharmacists, dry goods stores, all sorts of places. Then, in 1873, Congress goes, no, 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 naughty, bad. Uh, Don't do that. I'm just imagining the like World's Fair of like contraception, where it's like <laughs> we're going around with like, all these devices. <laughs> so yeah, in 1873, Congress passes the Comstock Law which is an anti-obscenity act that specifically lists contraceptives as obscene <laughs> material. Amazing. Wow. Yeah, brilliant. It outlaws the dissemination of them via postal services uh-huh. or interstate commerce. I'm not, I'm not even mad. I'm just like, it's just funny at this point, isn't it? Because it's yeah. so frustrating. <sighs> yeah, it's especially in the history, you're seeing these loops. Yeah. Yeah, right. At this time, the United States is the only Western nation to enact laws criminalizing birth control as well. Salute the flag, baby. America. America. Yeah. So in 1890, a Viennese gynecologist discovers the existence of chemicals that control the body's metabolic processes. After he observes a wide variety of these chemical substances... In 1905, they are named hormones. So mm-hmm. cool. we're aware that things are going on in our bodies. Almost 30 years after the discovery of hormones, scientists at the University of Rochester in New York identify progesterone, the ovarian hormone, 
And they conclude that this hormone plays a crucial role in preparing the womb for sustaining a pregnancy. Super cool. One year later, they discover estrogen as this, well. This timeline makes sense. It, yeah, this yeah, is cool. Right. I'm psyched for these guys. It took like all hormones, including testosterone, weren't, you know, we didn't know about any of those until the 1900s. So it's not like exactly, this is a, yeah. this isn't necessarily a gender based thing. No, <laughs> it's, a, it's just like, it took a bit of time to start figuring all of these things out. So yeah, about 30 years after hormones were first properly identified, mm. we got there. So whilst scientists are figuring all of this stuff out and whilst America is banning birth control, people are working behind the scenes to make it accessible to everybody. Hell yeah. And one of my favorite people in this whole journey is somebody called Margaret Sanger. Have either of you heard of her before? No. She established the American Birth Control League which cool. then turned into Planned Parenthood. Oh, oh my gosh, wow. Or the Planned Parent Federation of America. Oh, was she not like, okay, this, isn't she like- She might have been a bit eugenics-y. That was it, eugenics-y. Mm-hmm. She was real eugenics-y. We don't have to include this. It's up to I you. I think it's probably important <laughs> yeah. to include it. Okay, yeah. yeah, good. I just didn't know if it was, you know, going to detract from the <laughs> message, but- <laughs> I. It's not going to detract from her too much because like what she did for- making birth control accessible was really really cool but we can definitely acknowledge that she was not a fantastic person it's the nuance baby yeah of course of course the nuance absolutely so yeah she established the first birth control clinic in 1916 which was promptly shut down in 1917 she was arrested flee to England for a little bit and then returned to America to face trial and she was sentenced to 30 days in a workhouse. Uh, Okay, weird that workhouses still existed, (laughs) but at least it wasn't that bad. In 1918, this ruling was overturned and it was established that doctors were allowed to prescribe birth control in the form of the barrier methods that I talked about earlier. So you couldn't just go and buy them in the same way that you could before. You could have them prescribed to you to use which was a step in the right direction Mm -hmm. at least Uh, and i think this is what is still in place in america it's still in place here in the uk that you have to have your birth control prescribed maybe not in the form of condoms and things like that no you absolutely don't have to i think there is some legitimacy to prescription-based hormone contraception in fact in the uk i and i think this might be happening in america you can get just normal over-the-counter non-prescription combined pills now don't think you can you can it's just Can it's you? just started happening. Oh, interesting. It's really, really new. It's like in the last yeah. year this has started happening. Wow. But this is like the most basic form. The thing about the combined pill is that it has so many side effects that like you often yes. have to cycle mm. through quite a lot of them before you find a proper one. This is yeah. the one that's out, out on the market now is like the first entry level one. If you want something else, you probably still have to go to a prescription. Sometimes mm. this is fair enough you have some that like have a much higher risk of side effects this is one of the issues Mm -hmm. with female contraception because it was Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there's so little research into the kind of long-term side effects into it and now and now we do know more but it's too late because it's so part of society it's so like ingrained into at least like the society that we live in I, I can't say you know for sure how much regulation i think there should be i certainly think it should be as accessible as humanly possible yeah, uh-huh. but that doesn't it doesn't change the fact that like there is still quite a lot of risk with some of them yeah totally and possibly some benefits maybe not necessarily in talking to a gp but talking to somebody who does know about different birth control methods that can talk you through the best options yeah you can go to a sexual health clinic yeah and just and talk to a uh, sexual health nurse yeah yeah, and that kind of thing. You don't necessarily have to like talk to a doctor. 
I don't know about the US though. I feel like it's probably going to be harder there just because everything is. In the medical system is inherently harder. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Those are the vibes there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so this trial was very, very public and sparked a lot of birth control activism mm. across America, which is really mm. cool. Through the creation of Planned Parenthood and the donations that came with that, she was able to fund a lot more work and fund a lot more research as well. By the 1950s, there were over 200 Planned Parenthood centers. But Sanger, she was not, she was not happy because 40 years earlier, she had had dreams of a birth control pill apparently. And when Sanger was 72 years old, she was introduced to somebody called Gregory Pincus and almost begs him to try and make this pill a thing. So this is in 1951. He tells her that it is possible with hormones, but that he'll need like significant funding to make this pill happen. Uh, And she manages to secure a really, really small grant from Planned Parenthood to like get the research happening wow, cool while that this has to be entirely donation and privately funded like right? this is like a universally good idea yeah <laughs> this research specifically at the worcester foundation was almost entirely privately funded which is wild to me so after like many many years and lots of waiting because it took really really long time to get the funding that they needed a whole group of scientists worked together to create the progesterone pill that can be taken orally. So in 1957, the first version of this was approved by the FDA. This is specifically for therapeutic purposes. So things like heavy bleeding during periods. Okay. And all of a sudden, millions of women and people with uteruses start claiming they have these symptoms. Uh Yes, very good. Who could have seen that coming? By 1963, 2.3 million Americans are using the pill. And by 1967, 12.5 million people are using the pill worldwide. Sanger passed away in 1966, aged 88. So she was getting on in years when she pushed for the pill to start being created, which I think is really, really cool. Yeah. You, you can be 72 years old and fight for societal change. I love that. <laughs> and now the pill is widely available. In many of parts of the world, you can't buy it over the counter. This includes places like we just said, America, the UK, France, Norway, Australia, Canada, places like that. Although in a lot of those places, you can get it for free. Sorry, Americans. Sorry, Tom. It's crazy to me that you can't get contraception for free in the US. Can get it subsidized in the US. It's my right to pay for it. I get I don't have to. I get to pay for medical You get to pay for it. Lucky you. There is, of course, a map in the show notes showing where in the world you can get the pill for free for and where you can't you actually i mean you can't get it for free in the uk you still have to pay a prescription you pay your taxes but it's but it's no no no. as in you pay a prescription for it but it's a no you can get the pill for free in the uk not normally you can't no you can okay well why can't i not get that for free then because i've tried if you look at your prescription there should be a box on it that says uh, contraceptive oh and if you my take that God, you'll get are you it kidding me <laughs> no what did you not know this ella <laughs> did they never tell you all prescriptions are the same price in in the, U- in the uk no matter what you buy so it's not like i've been paying loads 
but I'm definitely paying more than I need to, obviously. I can't believe I'm 28 years old. Damn, when they said, let's learn everything, they really meant everything. <laughs> <laughs> this is maybe the most effective PSA we've ever had on the wow. entire show. <laughs> I can't believe this is on the podcast. I cannot, I cannot <laughs> believe. <laughs> I'm actually really annoyed. <laughs> Okay, let's crack on with this. Let's crack on Sorry. with it. Boy, how for the interlude. Um, for folks that are listening to this in the UK, you can get contraceptives for free, <clears throat> including but not limited to the pill, the implant, IUDs. You oh, can wow. get condoms for free if you go to your GP or any sexual health clinic. But yeah, feel free to check out the map I have in the show notes of places you can get it for free. I, I fucking hate my country so much. <laughs> There's also a lot of bad science surrounding birth control, mm -hmm. especially in today's political climate, where being on the pill has become essential for lots of people, not just in America, but for many places worldwide. Mm -hmm. Lots of conversations are happening around the pill. The safety of the pill, it's a possible affiliation to the gay agenda, all sorts of things. <laughs> so what? I <laughs> want to talk... <laughs> This is my favorite rabbit hole to fall down on Twitter. Um, but I want to talk about some of these, you know, not so great science, some misinformation, all of these things in the form of a little true or false Song. game. <laughs> no. Oh. Okay. If I were a contraceptive and you took me, I'd be an oral contraceptive. <laughs> Making you think you're pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, you're doing a TikTok thing. I don't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's play okay. this game. True or false, taking the pill can impact your fertility even after you stop taking it. False. What do you think? Huh. You think false? Tom, what do you think? <laughs> the way this is right, I, I could potentially see that being true. Uh -huh. Yeah, totally. And you know what? You're not alone in that opinion of it being true. Um, huh. It is false. But many, many, many people still believe that it is true. And there was a point in time mm. where science agreed. Mm. During the 1960s, when the pill is still, it's seeing its uptick in how many people are using it. Lots of people reported issues with their periods returning for up to a year mm. after mm. coming off the pill. So not having a period at all yeah. for up to a year. This obviously raised a lot of red flags for people. No periods means you're probably not ovulating after all and a lot of papers were written on this topic suggesting that the pill did cause fertility issues which is pretty damning and pretty scary and mm. it put a lot of people off using contraceptives and the pill specifically if the science says it's true why wouldn't you believe it and this opinion has remained for a really really long time here's the thing though Early forms of the pill had much mm -hmm. higher amounts of the hormones actually needed. The first brand, Enovid, contained 10,000 micrograms of progestin. In comparison, today's only have around 50 to 150 micrograms of progestin. Oh, whoa. Oh. What the fuck? So we've gone from 10,000 oh. micrograms to 150 what could what would that be doing to you that would be messing up your yeah. like your like whole yeah. body stopped your periods from happening for a really long time to start off with. so i did the math uh that is like taking the modern pill 66 times in a day 100 yeah. yeah wow and this was because people like pincus who helped with the research for it wanted it to work 
they wanted it to absolutely work for certain because if it didn't work, then faith in the pill would be lost. Right. So they released it onto the market knowing that it was a very high dose. That's very interesting. That's super interesting. It's almost like this private funded medicine system has some issues about stuff that's like that. That but that's that's really interesting. It's that's sort like, of a, it's so wild, isn't it? I mean that it makes sense it sucks and it's bad but like i can yeah. understand this the the climate for all that wow so this led to the pill having loads of side effects some of which you might recognize things like increased risk in blood clots cancers and one woman even died during initial trials of the pill <laughs> in Puerto Rico. Increased blood clots are still a risk with a bunch of pills. They are. So lower level doses of the hormones were approved not too long later in the 60s and 70s. They still obviously have side effects, but being infertile is not one of them. It's not uncommon for it to take about six months for a person's period to return to normal. However, no long-term fertility issues have been found. This hasn't stopped the concern, though, with the belief mm. being widespread. And this is actually something that I remember being taught about in school when I was, like, oh, really? 13. There's a great paper in the show notes titled They Destroy the Reproductive System, Exploring the Belief that Modern Contraceptive Use Causes Infertility. If you mm. want to read about different parts of the world, it's a really good one. True or false? The pill can turn you gay. Yes. <laughs> the one we've yeah. all been waiting for. The one we've all been waiting for. No, obviously not. No. no. According to some people, it is true. Although there's no real research that agrees with this. Earlier this year, a story went round of an Australian woman who fully believed she had become gay after stopping taking well, the pill. Was she still gay? This, she's still gay. No. Oh, I feel bad for her. <laughs> no, not for being gay. Sorry, that didn't come no, out right. Yeah, I feel like it's she's so long to realize. She, no, but she's gay and she's trying to make an excuse for it or something because she's not comfortable yeah, with it. Yeah, that is a good point. Yeah. There's definitely some internalized stuff there. Like that's that is... really yeah, sad. Like, okay, yeah. but still, don't spread shitty misinformation. Right? <laughs> it's just not true. And actually, some tabloids have obviously run with this and again have claimed that research supports the idea. For example, a 2013 paper looked at 55 women and allowed them to use a computer program where they could alter the appearance of male faces guys. to see what their preferences were going to guys. be. <laughs> I'm really glad we've done the uh, p-hacking yeah, topic because yeah. I could just be like... <laughs> Just like talk about that. Like the, the human psychology is so fucking complicated. The right. idea that that you can like take a pill and then like press a button on a computer and then that proves yeah, right. X, Y, or Z is is ludicrous. Especially when you're talking about these fucking individual studies. Like like right. like this is like like if there was this like huge web of of of, of studies that all pointed in a similar direction and, and we had some some idea of any mechanism, right? Uh -huh. As opposed to, to 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 pill makes gay. But just just these alone are really blah. Yeah. <sighs> some of these are really blah. So this particular study, 18 of these women went on birth control, so not even half of them. They were, came back three months later and were told to do the same thing again. And apparently women on birth control preferred less masculine faces. Did you say 18? 18, one eight out of 55. Would you say that this research supports the idea of God. pills turning people gay? Yes. Oh, no, sorry. yes, Mama. <laughs> yes, Fantastic. and we should spend more money on it. <laughs> yeah. Joe, yeah, Joe right? get on this. <laughs> but yeah, a study that didn't even look at women's faces, just men's, definitely turn them gay hey great fucking point caroline <laughs> right right just putting that how out are they there. getting the money to fund these studies 
<laughs> That's a great point, Ella. It's absolutely ridiculous. But that is where I'm going to leave some of these. There are other things like people claiming that it can make you smarter. The fear that the pill can make you blind, which is false, but it can impact your eyesight. All sorts of things that are being spread about the pill. Mm. I, I do think there's like legitimacy to wanting to see what like long term side effects Mm. of right. hormonal contraception is given that like but, but that that boils down to more the fact that like women's reproductive health is not very well funded and um mm-hmm. but this this sounds more like a kind of a hit thing to be like stop taking that thing that actually right. gives you reproductive freedom mm. absolutely so yeah a lot of these don't seem in good faith yeah, yeah fully actually that's why i want to leave it off today is that there are a lot of like really real side effects from taking the pill one that like was very personal to me was like the increased risk of blood clots especially Mm. after i caught covid in july of 2022 i was hospitalized because my gp thought the combination of covid and being on the pill meant that i was likely to have a blood clot in my leg which was really fun that was not a fun hospital stay but there's also a lot of really sensationalized headlines around the possible side effects of the pill especially at the moment with Roe v. Wade being overturned last year, there are fears that the right to having a contraceptive might be removed. But I think it's really important, whatever side of the conversation you're on, to be aware of what is backed by research, Mm. what is Mm. backed by good research, (laughs) and what isn't backed by research at all. The final little quote that I want to leave you on. In 1993, The Economist named the birth control pill one of the seven wonders of the modern world. Mm. When the history of the 20th century is written, it may be seen as the first time when men and women are truly partners. Wonderful things can come in small packets. Yeah, birth control pill has given a huge part of the population full autonomy over what happens to their bodies without the need to put crocodile dung up their vagina. Isn't that a wonderful thing? (laughs) What a quote to end on. (laughs) We've talked a lot about computers on the show before, but how do they actually work? It's something that's quite hard to explain on a podcast, but with Turing Tumble, you can actually build marble-powered mechanical computers. Turing Tumble is a marble run, a puzzle game, and a way to learn about computer logic all in one. By combining switches and gears, you can make marble contraptions that can do maths, create patterns, form logic, and more! I have been playing with Turing Tumble for a bit over a week now, and it is really a blast. Uh, It comes with a book full of puzzles with basically like missing pieces and hints, and it is so, so satisfying to assemble it on the board, experiment, figure it out, and then watch everything tumble perfectly. Uh, I still have the last puzzle up in my room because I just like having it run in the background. (laughs) That's so sweet. It's all the fun of a good puzzle, all the satisfaction of watching marbles tumble, and all the lessons of real computation. I have to say, when I was in college, we actually had to build a simple Turing machine in Microsoft Excel, (laughs) (laughs) which, as it sounds, one of the most dull things ever. But with Turing Tumble, you are literally doing the same principles with marbles and gears and switches. Uh, Having studied computer science, I'm like kind of blown away with how clever it is. I, I really don't know how they came up with this way to learn some of the basic logic of computers in a way that's a lot more fun, a lot more exciting, and also a lot more accessible. Oh, and I think one of the best things about it is that it's recommended for ages eight to adults. 
So, you know, you, you can use it on your own, you can use it with your kids, you know, it could be a family activity. Yeah. My parents got sent my game and my dad has been obsessed with it and been telling me all about it for like the oh, whole so week. Great. Um, <laughs> so if my dad likes it. From ages eight to dad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Never stop learning. See the Cheering Tumble in action at upperstory.com slash Cheering Tumble. And use the coupon code Let's Learn for 10% off your total purchase. That's upperstory.com slash Turing Tumble and code Let's Learn, all one word, for 10% off. Hi, I'm Travis McElroy. And I'm Teresa McElroy. And we're the host of Schmanners. We don't believe that etiquette should be used to judge other people. No, on Schmanners, we see etiquette as a way to navigate social situations with confidence. So if that sounds like something you're into, join us every Friday on Maximum Fun, wherever you get your podcasts. So today's question is, well, the first part of today's question is, what's the tallest point on earth? And so I'd like to ask you both, What's the tallest point on Earth? Uh, I don't want to do it. Say it. Don't, say it. Off. I mean, I, sorry. That, I'm sorry. I didn't mean I don't want to do the question. You meant. I meant. I, I don't want to. I don't want to answer what I think it is because I think say you can. Say it. Say it. Mount Everest. Yep. Oh. All right. Um, <laughs> do you guys want to take like a, a coffee break or a water break before we get to the <laughs> oh, mist? You know what? A, a lovely cup of tea would be so nice right now. Tom. Okay. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Right. Uh huh. Uh huh. Thank you so much. So. Mount Everest is the highest point on Earth at 8,849 meters above sea level. I really thought I was going to get caught out for something there. I feel like I feel like there's still time. Well. Oh, Tom, don't well me. Get, a, get out of here. <laughs> get out of here with your wells. <laughs> As the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, uh, which we mentioned in, uh, in Ellen's episode a few times. Yeah. As NOAA put it, it's not the, quote, closest point on earth to the stars do you know what that is by any chance the closest point to the stars no yeah another way to think of it is the farthest point from the earth's core is this because the earth is not a round shape it's a little a little oh, oval? so is it something yeah. something on one of the poles it's the opposite of that what somewhere in the equator yeah i don't think i understand what the shape of the earth is <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, but I thought it was, like, tall. I thought it was flat. I thought it was tall. No, it's it's a squished. Oh, it's it squished? Uh, well, it's because it's, because it's spinning. <gasps> I didn't know that. I thought it was tall. <laughs> wow. This is good okay. to learn, actually. I really didn't know that. So it's not just located on the equator. It's located in Ecuador. So the point on Earth that is closest to the stars and farthest from the Earth's core is Mount Chimborazo. How is this possible? Kind of like you mentioned, Caroline. Mount Chimborazo is 6,268 meters above sea level compared to Everest's 8,849. But because the Earth is spinning and it isn't a perfect sphere, the, the middle parts spin out, sort of like those um, spinning amusement park rides where like, that like fling you out. Yeah. Uh -huh. And on a, I want to be clear, on a planetary scale is a very, very, very slight amount. Like like yeah. most images you see describing this, this uh, thing known as the equatorial bulge are all exaggerating for visual effect. Mm -hmm. Right. But 
on a mountain scale, it is, and I want to be clear, this isn't just like a, like a, um, technically like it's like one meter or something. It is nothing to sneeze at. Mount Chimborazo is a full 2,072 meters farther from the Earth's core than Everest. Oh, that wow. is four and a half Empire State Buildings or 23% the elevation of Everest. That's really, I don't understand. <laughs> we're, and we're gonna i feel like one of the big things about like going up to everest is how harsh the conditions are great point caroline like there being less oxygen and things like that does yes, that mean yes. that our atmosphere is the same shape as the earth oh caroline i'm gonna ask you to hold this because because <gasps> oh, we're, okay, we're, cool. we're gonna jump into some you're so oh caroline you're so smart oh my god thank you but ella i want to echo a thing you said I'm going to be completely honest. Most fun fact sites and videos that teach you this fact about the two tallest mountains or the, the, the two highest points, they kind of just like drop those numbers and are just like, bye. 2,000 meters is a... It's a huge difference. You say that's, that's huge. Right. And, and you very rightly have a lot of questions. It's like how and why and like what does this mean? Yeah. But like even the NOAA website, which is where a lot of people cite as their source, it just kind of like tells you this and it's like, okay, bye. <laughs> but just like y'all, I had a lot of questions still. Yeah. And by the end of my research, I actually am 100% on Team Everest as being the tallest. Ooh, okay. Love that for you. And so I'm very excited to uh, <laughs> to uh, to have this discussion here. You team Edward or Team Jacob? <laughs> yep. Oh, yeah. Team Everest or Team Chimborazo. And so I want to ask you all the real question behind this question, which is, what the fuck is sea level and why do we measure altitude with it? top of the sea in it because doesn't <laughs> sea level change as well like that was what always confused me like what where uh -huh. is sea level is sea level the highest uh. point the sea can be the lowest point in the middle somewhere caroline we're gonna get into this i had these exact same fucking questions and we're finally gonna get answers to them i'm very excited and to get into it well, okay actually first i do want to ask which which of those mountains do you feel like right now you're you're on the side of? I feel like it's so much harder to climb Everest and therefore I don't want to do it. <laughs> but you have to. <laughs> if we reach 5,000, you and upgrading members. <laughs> <laughs> no. Ella, what are you thinking? Um. So th is this based on the question, what is the highest or what is the tall, like closest to the stars? I'm just going to say highest. Because then I'm on Team Everest because I'm not going for some bullshit like atmospherics, planet shit. It's, <laughs> it's the tallest thing. It's there. But also, if I could do like a shitty little Instagram story where I'm like... <gasps> I'm the closest person to the stars right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be Hollywood, California, baby. That's what yeah, I should have said. Yeah. <laughs> the to the stars. Um, okay. I'm angry. Uh, uh, Car <laughs> Car Caroline, you, you brought up a lot of great questions. And so I think to, to, to get into it, let, we're going to sort of work our way up to why we would use sea level. So uh -huh. we're, we're going to rediscover sea level. So let's say you're in London and you want to measure the highest elevation in the city. So you find the tallest building. It's a shard, by the way. How do you measure its height? You take a really big ruler. So you don't actually need a ruler. You take a laser and you shoot it down. Kind of, but you don't need to shoot it down. Really, all you need is math and triangles. Oh, oh my God. Do we have to talk about math and triangles? <laughs> I'm going to be so quick. We don't have to learn any actual math, I promise. So if you're standing on level ground and you measure an angle from the ground to the top of the building, 
and then you move back 100 meters and measure the angle again, you now have two angles and one length of a triangle, which oh. means you can find every length of the triangle, which means you can calculate the height. That's actually fun. Isn't it so fun? Um, but if math scares you, if you're zoning out, don't worry, it's fine. All you need to know is that with triangles, you can measure height. And people have been doing this since ancient Egypt. Oh, wow. Uh, with little weights on strings called a plumb bob. Oh. It's just, a, it's just, that's how you can measure an angle really quick. Um, and people still do it today. If you've ever seen a surveyor out with one of those little like tripod eyepiece gadgets. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's called a theodolite, and it just it just measures angles. Oh, I that's so oh, cool. That's like such, such a good that. thing to know. Yeah, every time I see one of them now, I'm just gonna be like, they're measuring an angle right now. How nice is that? I'm gonna use a plumb bob. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I'm gonna drive past saying, stop looking at triangles and get a real job. <laughs> nerd, <laughs> nerd. I know you're doing math. <laughs> Ew. Grossy. <laughs> you can also use air pressure. An altimeter to measure elevation. I was, I was thinking this. Oh, because like obviously, there's more factors with like temperature and stuff like that. It's it's a little more complicated, but that is one way to to do it. If you were using air pressure, wouldn't that mm-hmm. then mean that Everest was the highest point? It's a really really good thing, and keep that keep that in your heart. I'll hold that. I'll put that back. Okay. I'm cool, re- cool. I yes. just want to say for the listeners, I'm really out of my depth, and I'm feeling quite inferior right now. Caroline, you, <laughs> your brain is working in a way that mine is not. My brain just fucks shit up, you know? <laughs> this, this is what we were learning about when they split the boys and the girls. <laughs> <laughs> they actually put all of the non-binary people into a little room and taught them about triangles. <laughs> yeah, it was yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they put the condom on the banana and they were like, I don't fucking know. Hey, here's a few of the light. They're like, we don't know what to tell you about contraception <laughs> and sex health. So we're just going to tell you about mountains. <laughs> <laughs> So, but the problem with both triangles and altimeters is where do you measure from? Mm-hmm. Like, do you measure from the ground or from less than the ground or? Well, the ground where? If it's a building, the ground it's standing on. But what if it's on a hill? And what if the hill affects the, because you're talking about altitude, not the height of a building, right? So, so. Hills can fuck off. <laughs> Well, I mean, but the question is, right, do you, do you measure from the center of town? Do you measure from the lowest point in town? All of them? Do you do all of them? What if you wanted to compare it to another town that is like uphill of London? Right? What you would need is something known as a geodetic datum. It's a reference point for mapping the world. And while you can imagine England trying to make that reference point like the height of Her Majesty's brow for the entire world... Fortunately, we live on a planet where there is a convenient level across the entire world, something that even uh, Britain couldn't prime meridian their way into being the center of the universe. GMT, baby. And that is... Oh, uh, the ocean? Yeah. But which one? But which ocean? (gasps) Nice. (laughs) So you guys are thinking a little ahead, but the idea is that... Also, it isn't isn't like the sea level rising, so it's not... Does that mean buildings are getting... Does that mean Mount Everest is going to get shorter? No, no, it's because... Uh. So so when you measure from sea... And this is a, this took me a long time to, to realize also. When you measure from sea level, you get the average value and then you mark it. And so you don't change that marking. You know, technically it is changing. And, you know, on on the scale of like hundreds of years, we might eventually change it. But in practice, we're not like constantly changing it. But the idea was that 
the sea is sort of this like blanket of level you know those like little like um levels that have like a bubble inside a spirit level yeah, yeah, yeah spirit yeah. level but the idea was that the ocean functioned as a universe or a worldwide one of those except uh, i found out this amazing fact that the first plans for a national standard level in england wasn't actually going to be sea level can you guess what it was going to be based on the height of the queen's brow <laughs> so a lot of this this really niche history i got from this great paper by bradshaw et al from 2015 and they say quote a provisional datum was chosen as being 100 feet below a benchmark on St. John's Church, Liverpool. Okay, great. You, Why? Useful. It's just so hilariously... Can you imagine Everest being labeled like 8,000 meters above church? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> above John. Well, everyone's still working on GMT and no one knows what that means. Everyone's still saying... Um, Anno Domini, and so we're still doing shit. Oh yeah, of course, yeah. So you know, it's not that ridiculous to think of, but but fortunately for all of us, the the sea is it's a good point to use. And fortunately in England, they realized that using the church was a bad idea, and they eventually decided on sea level for what became known as the first geodetic leveling of England and Wales. They basically got the average tide value, put down like a, a benchmark, marked it down for that level and then laboriously made measurements and adjusted old data to all be based on that level. And do you know when this happened? 1700s. 1800s. Started in the 1840s. Was that before or after the female egg was discovered? It was, a just, it was after. just after. <laughs> yeah, which both feel way too recent, but in some ways it does make sense so like when you're talking about like horizontal and vertical coordinate systems that is something that like eratosthenes famously was trying to do in ancient greece like this that that is like a, a a thing that we've been doing for forever but you only really need to care about absolute altitude as opposed to like relative at altitude when you're dealing with things like complicated things like large-scale engineering tunnels and bridges and later of course aviation very important for that but you know otherwise these measuring based on the center of town is totally fine right there's no need for that until you're starting to get into these bigger things so in some ways it makes sense that happens so late but pretty wild mm -hmm. um, but for things like that sea level is amazing and much better than saint john's church in liverpool i'm sure it's a great church <laughs> um, but firstly it's accessible across the world it's just like a giant spirit level draped across the planet on top of that Sea level isn't arbitrary, as arbitrary as the placement of a church. It is a natural phenomena. Mm -hmm. I actually really liked the way the Encyclopedia Britannica put it. They said sea level is the, quote, position of the air-sea interface to which all terrestrial elevations and submarine deaths are referred. Ooh, yeah, the right? air-sea interface. Oh, I like that. Uh, it makes you less think of like fishes and more think about like liquids and like, like yeah, molecules and yeah, stuff yeah, like yeah. that, which is very interesting. I had never thought about that. I thought that was great. Um, but also for construction and civic purposes, it's also very helpful because knowing something close to the shore is below sea level for things like flooding is like a real mm -hmm. thing. So like oh. above and below sea level is like very, is practical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Versus like if it was the church, you'd have to be like, oh, is knowing something is like negative 132 meters mm -hmm. versus being like it's below sea level, right? Yeah. So it's a very practical reference point. And on top of that, all you need to measure sea level is just something called a tide gauge it's basically a bob that floats in a tube ah. and what you do is you measure the sea level until you have what you think is a good average something called mean sea level 
Uh, and then you physically mark that point down, maybe put like a little metal plaque and that becomes your reference. Quick tangent, because I thought this was super interesting. Do you know how long you would need to measure the C to get a good average? A day, 24 hours. A month? I'm thinking like a whole rotation of the moon around. Oh yeah, that's know? good. Great, great insight. So uh, uh, to a point that you made earlier, Caroline, all of these places that talk about like sea level and altitude, I feel like most of them don't address this like first question that I always have, which is that the sea changes famously a lot, right? Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. So on the second by second level, there's waves. On an uh -huh. hour by hour level, there are tides. On a day by day level, there is weather. And like there's high tide and low tide, which yep, change yep, 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 yep. all the time. On a month by month level, there are also seasonal changes, right? Famously, mm. you know, some places have rainy seasons. But Noah recommends getting the average measurement these days of 19 years. <gasps> oh! And there's a reason behind that number 19. Do you know why? No. That's such a specific. It is. Every, what happens every 19 years? I had no idea, but it, it is is the thing. So it turns out 19 years roughly squares with something known as the metonic cycle. Have you all heard of that? No. So we, we talked about something similar briefly on, on our birthday episode. We know that historically people have kept track of time using both the moon orbit and like mm -hmm. phases around the earth, as well as the earth's orbit around the sun. And we know that they don't line up perfectly, which is why lunar holidays aren't at the same time every year. Yeah. When I wrote the script, this was a bit earlier. And so I had a, a belated Eid Mubarak to all who celebrate. <laughs> uh, but what this means is just like holidays, the moon is going to be in a different place in the sky at every year. Okay. On the same day. Yeah. So like January 1st, 1999, January 1st, 2000, the moon is going to be in a slightly different place. Yeah. And so roughly every 19 years, those two cycles come back in sync and start again. Okay. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Gosh, I didn't realize it would take such a long time for it yeah. to all sync back up again. For any musicians listening, it's sort of like the moon and sun are in a polyrhythm. But on top of that, Waiting 19 years also helps even out any other strange weather patterns like yeah. uh, El Nino, which happened on more than a yearly basis. And there's an El Nino coming up soon, I think. Yeah. Well. We should do a, should do a, be a, good a talk topic. about some. Yeah. Um, do you want to guess how long they measured sea level in that first British survey I mentioned? A couple of days. Three days. N not 19 years. It's nine days. Nice. <laughs> uh, of course. I, I mean, like... I, I said 24 hours, so I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I feel like they should have given it at least a month. I feel like. Right. Uh, but yes. Um, Two weeks. Come on. Since then, it has been updated, obviously. And, and, and mm -hmm. there have been follow-up surveys that, that change some of that. But, you know, this process of getting your reference point from sea level, then re-triangling around is actually exactly how Mount Everest got its measurement of meters above sea level. Mm -hmm. They found the sea level reference, I believe, in India, and they measured triangles from the coast to Everest. That seems... Oh, wow. Okay. Arduous. Yeah, there's definitely some colonialism to this. Uh, you know, I don't want to go too deep into it. Uh, I'll link in the show notes. There's a good Vox video about sort of the, the geopolitics of some of these measurements mm -hmm. and how, like, recently there's been some uh, measurements made by actual, like, scientists from Nepal, which is pretty cool. But even in those cases, the same as back then, they were using triangles to do this measurement. And uh, I saw one article describe this process as carrying sea level, which I thought was really evocative. Mm -hmm. Like carrying it from the shore to the place you're measuring. Yeah, That's yeah, yeah, so yeah. interesting. Yeah. Through these triangles. I really like that. But it, it is also wild that like 
that that's how they did it. They like literally did it from sea level. Uh -huh. It's not just like a metaphor. It's like a real thing. All that being said, none of that does a good job of explaining why Everest deserves to be the highest point. Like sure, sea level has this history and this practicality, but why does that matter? In fact, one issue that you, you've both mentioned with sea level is rising sea levels. Uh -huh. Have y'all heard of something called climate change? <laughs> Gosh, no. <laughs> no. What, that sounds serious. Can you tell me about the history of climate change right now, Tom? I really, I really should have known that you guys would say that instead. <laughs> I have in my notes here, like, oh, really, you have heard about it? I guess I can cut stuff out of my script. I should have, I should have known that you guys were going were gonna to tell me and have a whole, whole page about the history of it all. Wait, let me, let me oh, try again. Oh, fuck. God damn it. Yes, Tom, I've heard about no, climate No, I'll take change. my L. That's a, that's a deserved L. Wow. <laughs> that's what I get for planning a joke. Uh, no, uh, um... In fact, you know, as much as I was shitting on that old British sea level like tide gauge, because they have been running continuously for so long, they have actually been a great source of data for sea level rise. Oh, oh that's very good. Some of the most famous graphs of like sea level rise of the like jagged line that like yeah. averages up are from those tide gauges, which no is way. really cool. That's so cool. What a good fact. So rising sea levels kind of ruin the concept of water being this consistent thing, which is uh -huh. what you guys have touched on earlier. Um, but there's an even more fundamental issue with sea level that you guys also touched on, which is that it is not even across the planet. Mm -hmm. It does not form a perfect sphere. It doesn't even form a perfect like squashed sphere or ellipsoid. Uh -huh. And this is the root of the, the Chimborazo and Everest battle, right? Like Chimborazo altitude above sea level is lower than Everest because the sea level itself is higher up, is like farther oh. from the center around the equator. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So, yeah. Why yeah. don't yeah, 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 they yeah. carry the sea from India? <laughs> <laughs> the same. So you're saying we should stick to, if if we had stuck with the church and just had one point. Yeah, then we could have just so done easy. triangles from the church to everywhere. Well, the, 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 you are actually onto something true, true here, Ella, which is that, you know, as science has progressed, how we measure verticality has now begun to be influenced by things like satellites. And NOAA is actually planning to update their vertical datum by 2025 to be based on things like tectonic plates okay. and satellite data and also gravitational measurements. It's not as catchy. Yeah. They're saying uh, just it's this this high above sea level. Well, there is a, there is a word we're going to get to that is pretty catchy. But Ooh. I will say that, like, don't don't crucify me for some of for what i just said there there's a lot of like nuance and like bureaucracy and technicalities mm. and i am not myself a surveyor mm -hmm. um or and i'm sure we should do a topic on gps another day but like it, it, it's all very complicated and still actively being worked on but the thing is under that new datum and that new system chimborazo will still be lower than everest Okay. And that's because this new datum and system of this method of measuring is going to be pretty darn similar to sea level. And that's because sea level isn't as arbitrary as I made it sound. Ooh, okay. Sea level may be uneven to a sphere or even like a squashed ellipsoid, but it's actually very close to perfectly level for something known as the geoid. The what? The geoid? The geoid. G-E-O-I-D. Oh. So if you can imagine, you get rid of all of the wind and weather 
and have all of the oceans be perfectly still around the earth, right? Like, like imagine a perfectly smooth ocean. That shape would approximate the geoid, which is a theoretical surface where every point is level. Okay. Uh-huh. As Scientific American put it, the geoid is, quote, a surface such that if you placed a marble anywhere on it, it would stay there rather than rolling in any direction. Okay. Ooh, okay. And this is where it got a bit mind-bendy for me. This took me a second to digest. Even though every point on the geoid is gravitationally level, it still has a bulge at the equator and it has bumps and valleys because gravity is not even across the earth. Oh, oh. I'm having a real what? tough time with this whole topic. <laughs> yeah. So, so, okay. So you know how flat earthers are like, well, if the world is round, why don't things roll off? Right. <laughs> Stupid. And, and, right. And the, the answer to that is gravity, right? Well, the logical extension of that is that it applies not just to like the sphere of the earth, but all the gravitationally messy pockets and hills of the earth. Okay. How big are these differences in gravity? Like, are they like super, super noticeable or are they like... No, no. You know, they're not as big of a difference as like the Everest to the Marianas Trench, right? It's like okay. not that huge because it's sort of like an averaging out of yeah. the mass, right? Well, well, and actually you, you already know the difference because... Th that geoid difference is how Everest and Chimborazo have different heights. That sea level difference is the geoid difference. I'm fine. I'm on. I, I'm sorry. I'm just not following. Like, I don't understand what a geoid is. I don't <laughs> I think I follow. I'm struggling with the idea that gravity is different in different places. That's the thing that I'm like. It'd be bumpy because like the thing it's laying on, like the actual earth it's laying on is bumpy. Well, is it's, it's not saying. just like laying on the earth. It's also being pulled at certain points. So there's actually certain gravitational anomalies where there's like a weird pocket in the Indian Ocean that like they think is the earth is just like less dense there. And so the sea level is uh... higher there. Oh, Okay. There's less pull down to that area. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah, okay. This is not... As soon as you said that the Earth is less dense in some places, I was just like, oh, yeah. Makes sense, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, again, it's very subtle, but this is the case. And obviously one of the biggest things about the geoid is that same equatorial bulge, where at the equator, gravity is slightly lower and sea level is slightly higher. So... When people say that Everest is 8,849 meters above sea level, what they really mean is 8,849 meters above the geoid. Okay. Above the equipotential gravitational surface, as one place said, which sounds a lot less arbitrary than just saying sea level, right? This is a metaphor I came up with that kind of cemented it for me why I'm Team Everest. In theory... If you built a slide connecting the two mountains, you could slide down from Everest to Chimborazo. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because the gravity would pull you down. Okay. Yes. Okay. I like that theory. Yeah. That uh -huh. really um, obviously hasn't been built. So, you know, there's, and obviously it would be a very slow slide. It'd be a very slow slide. Yeah. <laughs> I insist on that being built. <laughs> um, another great way to think of this is if you started to fill the earth up with water, Chimborazo would be submerged first before Everest. Yes. 
Okay. Everest would be the last thing underwater. Okay, this all makes a lot more sense to me than any of the other stuff. Yeah, good. <laughs> that I can. I'm glad those metaphors took me so long to build, but I was like, when I when I like realized them, I was like. That makes much more sense yeah. Than, yeah. than the geoid, yeah. Well, I'm just thinking about, like, the geoid, if you put a marble on the geoid, the marble wouldn't uh -huh. move. But if you put a marble from on, on the slide, then, yes. then the marble would go all the way Correct. down. Exactly, yeah. exactly. I'm with it. Because Everest is higher up in the on the geoid. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay, cool. But to, to Caroline's point, you know, all of these thought experiments aside, any mountain climber will tell you there's a very practical difference between climbing Everest and Chimborazo, because... Uh -huh. Everest passes through something known as the death zone. Do you know what that is? Death zone, death zone. The place where everybody could die if they're there for too long. Woo! That's, yep. is, that's something to do with air, like... Exactly. Isn't that the amount of exactly. oxygen, oxygen in the air at that yeah. point? Yeah. Yep. So it's less of an official point more than it is sort of like a cultural one. But to something that Caroline said earlier, not only does like water match gravity in the geoid, <gasps> so does air and air pressure oh which is very important yeah. for climbers and so any point above eight thousand meters from sea level or the geoid not from the center of the earth is something known as the death zone where oxygen levels are simply untenable as dr jeremy windsor said of climbers blood samples who crossed it quote these were comparable to figures found in patients on the verge of death oh wow uh. okay gosh whereas you can take a group photo with your exposed face on top of Chimborazo, which you can find a lot of. Okay. That, like, absolutely confirms it for me that Everest <laughs> is taller, you know? If, I feel like if you're entering the death zone, then you're there. It's, it's interesting because it it's clearly higher from a human perspective. Mm -hmm. And what's very interesting is kind of to what you guys were saying, like, for this to click with me, I, I poured over a ton of like NOAA articles, Nat Geo articles that are like, this is the geoid. Imagine the geoid in your mind. Like it is a this and this and this. Uh, but if I'm going to be completely honest, the thing that finally made this click for me was a Quora response. Uh, this isn't like the answer where I got the answer, but like this wording of it finally made me rethink all the other articles. Now you heard it here, guys. Tom does all of his research on Quora. Off of Quora. <laughs> yep. <laughs> there was a response from uh, Chiro Pabon, who is a highway surveyor and cartographer who actually works with like theodolites. And he said, quote, <laughs> farmers would mock me if after using my really, really expensive GPS that makes corrections based on the daily position of the poles measured by interferometry using a satellite that hovers 300,000 kilometers above the earth that after all that, the ditch I designed flowed uphill, <laughs> you know, and, and this is also why airplanes use both GPS altimeters and also air pressure altimeters, both of which are tuned using local mean sea level data still, because when push comes to shove, that is more important than knowing how far you are from the center of the earth or how close to the stars you are uh -huh. mm -hmm. it's more important to know what sea level is because sea level is sort of like human level you know like you can technically say all you want that chimborazo is farther from the core but when you're talking about gravity and what down is and where air is and where water is Everest is higher in like all of those yeah. parts and that is how a lot of people deal with altitude like planes and stuff like that they don't care about like your satellite xyz coordinates they care mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. not crashing into the, being above sea level yeah. above the ocean yeah. right so I, I know 
Oh my god, I can't imagine. Are you gonna? I'm gonna ask the stupidest question now. So the reason Chimborazo is is considered potentially higher is because it's further from the Earth's core. Correct. Okay. I'm sorry if you said that and I just completely blacked uh-huh. it out. That's dumb. <laughs> <laughs> We have no access yep, to that. Yep. Great fucking yeah. point. Also a great point. Obviously, what we are closest to, what we can stand on and see is going to be, I mean, I appreciate all the maths and the, the knowledge you've given us, but yeah. like, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> that is a perfect summary. Just of the- like, I feel like us measuring how far away the stars are is also not a great yeah it's I like what yeah lovely what a lovely sentiment that means nothing to us practically yeah exactly yeah 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 so you know still i imagine some people still might not be convinced to be team everest and that's fine you're um, wrong you know <laughs> I, I will say i will say team chimbrazo does still have the great tagline which is like closest to the stars that's cute Ugh. love that for that it's cute still still pulls something in my heart but even if you're not convinced of that i hope you have learned how complicated and meaningful sea level is right mm-hmm. it's not just mm-hmm. when people say that they they really are speaking to, to something about the the planet itself and gravity and which is mm. which is so so why and and speaking to how we all live on a daily yeah. basis and, and use height and altitude and i hope also you have a better appreciation of just how wild our planet is um because Another thing that most people don't talk about when they pit Team Chimborazo against Team Everest is there is absolutely no reason why our planet needed to have two tallest points. Mm-hmm. That's that's just luck of the draw of how, of how our planet formed. And I think we are lucky to live on a weird gravitationally oblong rock that is strange enough to have two oddities on it Mm. when i think about other planets i just feel like very lucky that that we have those two to have this fight at all it feels very human to have these two things to kind of argue about doesn't it and it's such a great way to 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 learn about it because like if it didn't exist then you'd just be like um technically the equatorial bulge and the geoid versus like knowing these two things are are um is 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 cool and i feel very lucky to be on a planet that has such weirdness to it mm. that we get yeah. to learn about nice thank you tom thanks tom i get she so i learned a lot there i will say i was quite i was very quiet for my normal because i, was, <laughs> I just did was taking me quite a lot of time to process some of the information yeah totally mm-hmm. dude mm-hmm. this took me a lot of but i did get so much good info out of that that was great yeah We've learned on the show about the phrase, the best thing since sliced bread. But that might change soon to the best thing since baked from frozen bread with wild grain. (laughs) Wild grain is the first ever bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas and artisanal pastries. You'll get all the benefits of fresh baked grains, that lovely warm smell in the kitchen, the springy bite of hand cut pasta with all the convenience of being able to actually keep it in the freezer for whenever that urge strikes. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, so it's perfect for any occasion, from a centerpiece to a pasta dish to a 1am loaf of sourdough, because why not? That line is not a joke. I have I have kind of gone a little mad with power. <laughs> but, 
whenever whenever my partner's over and it's like late, everything's closed, I could just be like, hey, what what if we make the loaf of sesame sourdough like right now? And then you have it. And I have to say, sesame sourdough has been my favorite so far. Very Sounds good. So good. <laughs> and what's even more than that, Wild Grain actually donates six meals to the Greater Boston Food Bank for every new member. So you can eat good and do good at the same time, which we love. Plus, for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in awesome. every box. when you go to wildgrain.com forward slash let's learn to start your subscription you heard me free croissants (laughs) Uh, in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash let's learn y'all we we talked about the croissants last time but I finally got them this this time I finally baked my free croissants last week they are fantastic. They are flaky on the outside, airy on the inside. Oh. Uh, and again, unlike baking them yourself, because they are frozen, you can just say like, I feel like baking one croissant and you can. <laughs> and it's great. Oh, yeah. That's such a good point. That's wildgrain.com slash let's learn. Or you can use promo code let's learn at checkout. That's that that's that translation for our French listeners. <laughs> hey, it's John Moe inviting you to listen to Depression Mode with John Moe, where I talk about mental health and the lives we live with all kinds of people. Famous writers. David Sedaris, welcome to Depression Mode. Thanks so much for having me. Movie stars. Jamie Lee Curtis, welcome to Depression Mode. I am happy to be here. Musicians. I am in St. Paul, Minnesota. I'm talking to Amy Mann. Great to talk to you. And song exploders. Rishikesh Hirway, welcome to Depression Mode. Thanks so much for having me. Everyone's opening up on Depression Mode on Maximum Fun. So today's miscellaneous topic is menstruation products, if Ooh. you will. Disclaimer at the top, Caroline, you were very good at this. People with uteruses, people who have periods. I sometimes say women. I do. I am yeah. being like, I do mean anyone who has a period. If it comes out, I apologize. Yeah. And it was one of the things that like a lot of the articles say women and a lot of the research says women. And sometimes you just put women in there. So yeah, that's cool. it's not it's not meant to be. A yeah, comment, not meant to a be... comment on anything, which is yeah. the, the thing I want to make clear. Turf seat shit. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to start with a bit of history. So it's quite short, a bit of history. Oh, no. And this was really funny when I wrote it, but now we've mentioned it two times in a row already. In both of your topics, you have mentioned this. What? Ancient Egypt? Where do you think. Ancient where, Egypt? Where do you think the <laughs> earliest historical evidence of menstrual products? Ancient Egypt! My favorite place. Jesus ding, Christ. Ding, ding, ding. I wrote ancient Egypt. <laughs> <laughs> but um, as, as Allah mentioned earlier, this is because uh, this is the earliest example of written examples of this. Uh, yeah, I say earliest records. I heard that on a podcast somewhere. It was really good. Yeah, wild. <laughs> <laughs> so medical records from ancient Egypt describe tampon shaped devices made from like softened papyrus plant. No way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is insane, like, that this knowledge is there. I think it really, like... Like, a part of me thinks it makes so much... Like, of course, you have a tampon-shaped thing to fit in the in the hole. Yeah. It just makes it's so much sense, yet it's so boggling to me that we essentially had 
an equivalent of a tampon in ancient Egypt. Yeah, for a, for a time we did. I also feel like we went really backwards with our menstrual care. Oh yeah, we did. Let's get into Ooh, it. Okay. <laughs> now, okay, so the long-standing global taboo around menstruation, um, which we will discuss a bit later, means that mm. we ha- actually have very few records about what people used before relatively recently. Oh wow, okay. Mm. Between like ancient history and now, we had quite a mm. bit from ancient history and then nothing for a long time because men write history and they didn't feel that menstruation was worth documenting. Mm. Um, But let's go through what else we do know. So the natural approach really dominated the ancient human world. Obviously, ancient Africans used rolls of grass or grass mats as like a sanitary napkin. Romans used wool and other cloth paddings. So for example, this is an amazing story. In, in, In the fourth century, we have a story of the first known female mathematician, Hypatia, throwing a cloth that was used to absorb her menstrual blood and it was used at a man to get him to leave her alone. <gasps> oh my God, that's fantastic. I was going to say, I I do love the image of like an ancient Roman uh, boyfriend being sent out to grab one from the drugstore and coming back with like parchment and her being like, yeah. why did you, what, do you think these are the same thing? Yeah. <laughs> and a fallen yeah. tail is all this time. <laughs> I got a rock. Is that that's what you use, right? <laughs> I got a hundred rocks. That's how much you need, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so this is around the fourth fourth century BC, and then we go into a kind of a black box. There's like a quite an expansive period, pardon the pun, of history <laughs> from the early BC to nineteenth century wow. AD, where we know almost nothing about what women used it is i gotta say it is very interesting to compare and contrast this with birth control because while both being issues that affect people who who get pregnant and deal with pregnancy they are separate and they are different yeah they are and, yeah absolutely I, was, I think it's so interesting that on one side with birth control it was banned and therefore in like medieval europe the things that took its place were things like charms and amulets Menstruation was happening. Yeah, you can't ban it. 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 Like there was no stopping that. There's no abstinence only. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Menstruation. And we just did not keep a record of it. Instead, you know. This n- nuance and comparison is super interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I feel like I feel like it's very easy to lump them together. Uh-huh. Um. When when the difference in even the history of itself of of, of how we talk about it is yeah. is so different. Very interesting. Yeah. There, there is a. A great similarity where we know a lot more about the earlier days yeah and also we um it was much more open and talked about and shared mm. that knowledge was shared yeah, yeah, and then yeah, it went yeah. through this kind of period this just, i'm gonna keep on period. saying period so i'm sorry <laughs> and it's gonna be funny every time <laughs> <laughs> and that that similarity does lie between them but there is a lot of nuance between and a lot of that has to do with like the socialization of the issue um, and how they are both socially taboo or difficult to talk about subjects but they, the approach is different. Mm. But anyway, so we know that women use like tatty old clothes rags, basically, yeah. around the kind of medieval European times. And that's pretty much all we know. It's also very likely that many, if not most women, just bled into their clothes freely, which won't have helped mm. them protecting them from stigma. Mm-hmm. Mm. But then we kind of come towards the end of the 19th century, the 1800s, and we have the rise of capitalism, of women in the workplace, and most importantly, oh, yeah. a, a growing understanding of maintaining sanitary conditions. <gasps> oh, 
Well, I can't say Okay. <laughs> so this is where we suddenly see an explosion of menstrual products available for women. Yeah. And the most popular for a very long time was the sanitary belt, which was introduced in the 1890s. I've what? heard of the sanitary belt. It's, it's oh, an God. interesting device. It makes me so happy to not have been alive. Yeah. Then. And yeah. these were used for a long time. So you just barely missed the cutoff in terms of, you know, human history. Oh. <laughs> so this is basically a waistband of elastic with clips attached at the front and back. And you'd put like a washable cloth pad and clip it in and that would sit in your underwear. Sustainable though, right? So it's like a garter belt that holds a diaper pad. Yep, basically. Variations of this were the most used menstrual product until the 1970s. <gasps> Jesus Christ! Yeah. <laughs> Jesus oh, Christ! Oh gosh, so recent. Yeah. We went to the moon! We've been on the moon by that point! Yeah, it's that ridiculous. <laughs> That means that like there could have been people listening to this right now who would have used uh, that. Yes, but if and if you have, tell us in the Discord. So. <laughs> <laughs> Please tell us about your menstrual uh, hygiene no. products in their Discord server. Please do. My favorite Discord call out to date is, is <laughs> this one. <laughs> Did you use a sanitary belt? Let us know. But okay, so they were the most used, but they weren't the only thing available. Yeah. Um, throughout the late 19th century and the early 20th century, you also had sea sponges. Oh, These were actually ooh. thought to also be used by oh. ancient women. No way. But they had now had a net with a string so they could be easily removed from the vagina. They were also a lot easier to use and cleaner than using like reusable sanitary napkins. Hmm. Um, the first widely used disposable sanitary napkins came about following World War One. So nurses repurposed the wood pulp bandages that they used to stop bleeding on the battlefield as wow. menstrual products because they saw how well they absorb blood. Because ah. um, the material oh. is really cheap, so it could be thrown away. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fascinating. Eventually, this kind of throwable pad would be used in conjunction with the sanitary belts mm. because they, they hadn't made the adhesive yet, which is what is used to stick it on underwear. Disposable sanitary napkins were developed by Johnson & Johnson in 1896 originally, decades earlier before these nurses kind of started to use them but they failed because they were first of all too expensive and women were too embarrassed to ask for them in stores oh, oh. wow wow now in 1929 physician dr earl Haas invented and patented what we know as the modern day tampon with an applicator oh lucky of course it was a man who profited from this thing oh, of course it was <laughs> yeah and what makes this more insulting is he actually got this idea from a female friend no! of course of course why would she of course <sighs> yeah Gosh. he she she was using an alternative absorbent material and he basically took it and adapted it he did experiment with the design and he settled on this. Like, it's a tightly wound strip of absorbent cotton with a string attached for movement. But he got that idea from someone else. Wow. Jesus Christ. Probably someone who got it from another woman who would pass this yes, information down. Pass this, like word of mouth mm. to other mm. people. Mm. Yeah. Hass then went on to trademark the product name Tampax, which you might recognize oh. as the name of one of the most successful menstrual product companies yeah. in the world. I guess a, a slight upside to this story is Hass actually sold the trademark to a businesswoman named Gertrude Tendrick for $32,000 in 1933, and she formed the Tampax company. Okay, cool. That's good. It, it comes back around again. Yeah. So it took a while for these to become popularized, but finally, you know, in the 1970s, well, you got the adhesive strip on disposable sanitary pads first Yay. around then. So they became 
much more popular and the sanitary belt was swiftly done away with. Get rid of it. Don't want it, please. (laughs) And actually, tampons were really popular from around the 60s to the 70s, but... In the 1980s, there was a huge rise in the case of toxic shock syndrome caused by yeah. super absorbent tampons, which people thought you could leave in for a lot longer. Mm. Oh, no. So we ended up going back round to um, yeah. sanitary napkins again. Quick PSA, toxic shock syndrome is a rare but life-threatening condition caused by bacteria getting into the body and releasing toxins. It's often associated with tampon use in young women, but it can affect anyone of any age, including men and children. Don't leave your tampon in for too long. You'll be fine. Cool. Okay, so we're more or less at the modern day now. There are branding and product design changes over the decades, but tampons and pads are mostly the same as they were back in the 1970s, and they remain the most popular menstrual products. Mm, mm -hmm. But you'll have noticed a somewhat concerning trend here from natural products in the ancient times to reusable ones in the 1900s to single-use disposable ones (gasps) now. Oh, yeah fascinating what is the environmental impact of this change get out of town i would not have guessed this is where this topic was going not at all here are some quick stats okay (gasps) based on an average of 38 years of menstruation using 22 items of sanitary products per year 13 cycles per year one person can use more than 11,000 disposable menstrual products in their lifetime Whoa! I don't have global um, numbers for this, but in the UK, around 3.3 billion units of single-use menstrual products are disposed of every year. Then this generates 200,000 tonnes of landfill waste a year in the UK alone. Uh Wow. Also worth noting, most menstrual pads are made from 90% plastic. Tampon applicators are made from plastic. Yeah. Mm, mm. And another concerning issue, it's estimated that 1.5 to 2 billion menstrual items are flushed down toilets in the UK each year. (gasps) Don't flush your menstrual products. (laughs) It's bad. Obviously, it's bad for where it ends up going, but we get huge blockages all over the UK for this, and I assume in other countries. Yeah. Anyway, so you can now see that single-use products are contributing to an already like staggering unrecyclable waste problem yeah yeah fortunately more environmentally friendly alternatives have been developed Yay! like menstrual cup which collects blood in a bell-shaped vestibule yeah. mm-hmm. bell-shaped vestibule isn't that a nice way to say <laughs> it nice. i do like that yeah so these were actually patented by leona chalmers in 1939 no way oh. but they just never took I, off i guess and like I, as soon as rubber was a thing oh great point great point yeah yeah they were made from rubber originally but with their resurgence they're now made from medical grade silicone yeah and a single one apparently can be used for up to 10 years holy wow it's recommended you use them for between two and three but they uh, can yes, last they can. that long yeah yeah yes um super cool good that's a good that's a good point caroline and um, period pants are another environmentally friendly option. Also heard about these, yeah. As yep. the, there's a huge resurgence of washable pads as well. Yes, yeah. It feels like at the same time that rewashable nappies have started to come yes. back into fashion. Yeah, and I have friends who use pads. them. Yeah. And obviously the newer design means the belts aren't needed, which is very good. I would definitely personally recommend moving on to one of these products if you menstruate. I personally use a menstrual cup. Me too. Because it's the easiest oh. thing to use. Uh, Tom, I assume you two too. <laughs> yeah. I have a friend who who sings the praises of the menstrual cup yeah. uh, tremendously. I would say it's, Thanks, it's worth giving it a go. And if yeah, it doesn't for work for you, that's absolutely fine. And obviously it's not 
always the most accessible thing to use and that's okay too this is what we're about to talk about because i appreciate that not everyone has the luxury of thinking about the environmental impact that that period products will have because you might know this phrase caroline period poverty is a very real and global issue i had no clue that this was where this was gonna go and i'm so (laughs) happy about it this is so good so so do you know what this means i don't i'm not familiar with this no okay so really it basically it refers very simply to not having access to safe hygienic menstrual products and or being unable to manage your period with dignity. Mm. For example, in India, approximately 12% of women can't afford menstrual products, so they use rags and sawdust. No. It's also worth noting that girls with disabilities disproportionately do not have access to Mm -hmm. the facilities and resources Mm. for proper menstrual hygiene. A common consequence of period poverty is missing school. One in 10 girls in Africa miss school because they don't have access to menstrual products (gasps) or because they aren't safe private toilets to use at school Mm, mm. using unclean sanitary products can also lead to infection and illness Mm -hmm. why does this happen what are the two reasons main reasons do you think uh the patriarchy and capitalism yeah capitalism not having the money for it or the education around it as well cost and stigma yeah yeah that's it Cost and stigma. The patriarchy and capitalism. Yeah. Yeah. Woo! So first cost. I can't find it like a really good source for how much someone will spend on menstruation over their lifetime, but this seems to range from anywhere from like $1,700 to $5,000 over their lifetime, Yeah, which might not sound a lot to someone, but if you are in poverty, then that can be everything, right? Especially because it is... It, it it's unavoidable it, it yeah. is like an implicit tax yeah. on you yeah well i was about to say and this is all made worse by the pink tax do you know yeah. what the pink yeah. tax yeah. is i do yes go on like isn't it the idea that things typically that are pink you have to pay more for or things that are designed for women you have to pay more for you can see this across the board for things like hair removal products and children's toys and clothing all the way through to hygiene products like exactly your period yeah if you just pay an increased tax on what products marketed towards women it's an increased cost but the tampon tax specifically falls under this bracket. So tampons, which are essential, tend to have additional sales tax. For example, in the UK, they were taxed as a luxury item. Yes, they were, <laughs> weren't they? Despite the, yeah. fact that, despite the fact that things like erectile dysfunction pills and golf club memberships were tax exempt. Yeah. Jesus fucking Christ. And period products are still subject to high sales tax in 30 or 50 US states. Wow. But countries that have made menstrual products tax-free include kenya australia canada india jamaica nicaragua nigeria tanzania lebanon malaysia colombia south africa nambia and rwanda a lot of african countries there which are like trying to really tackle this issue head-on which is good that's amazing and as as of the first of january 2021 they were tax exempt in the uk too ah getting rid of this tax will not single-handedly make period products affordable but it will help yeah yeah, totally. Now, also contributing to period poverty is stigmatization or taboo mm-hmm. of menstruation. And as I mentioned at the start, this stretches back to ancient history. So in 77 AD, Pliny the Elder wrote, Of course. Contact with menstrual blood turns new wine sour. Crops <gasps> touched by it become barren. Hives of bees die. Wow. 
<laughs> Don't bring the bees into this. Mm. What? Hives of bees die. It's crazy. Uh, it's also very funny because when you talk about ancient, you're not talking about, because again, it's one of those things where you go too far back and then it becomes more normalized. But then there is definitely that sweet yeah. spot or maybe that sour spot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it was AD. So just like uh, post. Okay. Yeah, right. right like right. 77 AD. So just getting into a kind of more religious period for most yeah. of the world. But today, extremes still exist. In some rural Hindu communities in Nepal and India, the ancient tradition of Chaupadi is practiced in which menstruating women are seen as impure and unclean and they're banished mm. to huts for the duration yeah. of their periods. And this is mm. illegal in these places, but it does still happen. Anita Coroma from Sierra Leone told the UN's Water Supply and Sanitation Collaborative Council that me and my sisters all hid our sanitary cloths under the bed to dry out of shame. <sighs> Oh. I just wanted to get like a, a voice in there of someone who actually goes through this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I, I do want to be clear that this isn't a uniquely developing nation problem. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. You know, it's estimated that about over 130,000 girls in the UK are missing lots of school each year because they lack access to sanitary products. Yeah. Wow. There's a huge stigma around them asking for them. Just for example, you can get them from doctors for free in some cases, but people tend not to ask. Yeah. Wow. I know this has been very heavy. I, I, I felt like I had to keep it in there. And I've decided to talk yeah, about totally. this heavy stuff alongside the fun historical stuff because it's only by talking about these things open and educating people being honest about things that we can break stigma and promote healthy habits but talking isn't everything on a more practical level there are many organizations that are providing menstrual products to women around the world freedom for girls in the uk the pad project in the usa action aid across africa india and nepal the UN Sanitation and Hygiene Fund is working to improve sanitation and hygiene for the most vulnerable populations. Their message is that they see access to kind of safe hygiene and menstrual products as a human right. Yeah. yeah. Hannah Neumeyer, head of human rights at menstrual hygiene education organization WASH United, said, It's simple. Women and girls have human rights and they have periods. Yeah. One should not defeat the other. Dang. Yeah. And I think that's where I leave that. <laughs> oh. That was fantastic. Yeah. I really enjoyed that. We have a we have a platform. Yeah. Yeah. And it's and it's such an easy like easy way to use it to just be like let's just talk about this thing. Yeah. yeah it's, totally. It's honestly great. It makes me very 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 happy that we get to talk about it in a way that is I fucking I love getting to learn with y'all because it is I hope everyone gets to talk about all of these messy things in in a similar fun way that is both very serious, but can be also very fun and very silly and can be mm-hmm. full of dumb questions that yeah. we can be made fun of for, but also uh-huh. in a loving way, knowing that we're all learning. I hope this like prompts some people to have a conversation about it that they might not have had before, Yeah, you yeah. know, and just like, like turn around and go, have you heard of period poverty before? Are you yeah. aware of this? What can you tell me about this? You know? Yeah. Breaking that stigma a little bit. Ella, is that something you want to ask? Not if you keep on bringing it up all the time. (laughs) Every podcast, you're like, Ella, is this something you want to ask? No, maybe I don't want to ask. I can't ask it. It's Intervention Corner. (laughs) (laughs) It's Review Corner. Oh my goodness. 
this. I don't. I, I didn't. I I, can I, I'm going to say that again because I sounded fed up. It's review corner. <laughs> <laughs> and next time, Ella, now you're ready. You're gonna. You're gonna snipe Caroline next yeah, time. Get in there. As soon as Caroline finishes their sentence at the end of the topic, <laughs> it's, review, it's, review, review, corner. Corner. it's <laughs> review corner. This review comes from Kirsten Sparkstall from Apple Podcasts, and they say. Great sitcom for this history nerd. Aww. Heard a promo for LLE on another Max Fun podcast in February and have been catching up on all the old episodes ever since. Finally up to date. Yay. It still blows my mind that there is stuff to catch up on. Like that we are a catch up yeah. the podcast. <laughs> I still think we only have like two or three episodes. <laughs> We're getting there. We're really getting there. Uh, added LLE to my Max Fun distributions in March. I love listening to these three nerds be very excited about what they're talking about. Students learn best from teachers that are excited. Thank you, Ella caroline and tom Aww. oh that's such a good point as well that's so nice yeah and thank you for listening and leaving that review it's very nice. thank you very oh, much so lovely thank you so much any any plugs or shout outs anyone i'm shout plugging and shouting out us we all of our things yeah. they're all on let's learn everything pod.com that's the one Along with our Discord server, if you want to join in the conversation. Well, I do want to know which team you're on. I do want oh, to yeah, start we do that. Oh, yeah, we team do. You're on, yeah, actually. yeah, I want to know which team um, you're on. Team Everest, Team Chimborazo. Come and join us over at the Discord server. Where we can fight about mountains, but agree about women's healthcare. Yeah! yeah. <laughs> so, this episode, we learned that the pill does not cause lesbianism, <laughs> but it does have a lot of other side effects that you should take seriously and make sure you get your facts from reputable sources. Mm. We learned that there could be two highest points here on earth although if you're asking a human i think we know which one <laughs> is gonna win <laughs> yeah that's good but also the sea level is fucking weird lads <laughs> <laughs> and we also learnt about a bit of the history of menstrual products as well as learning some fantastic key times today which i hope everybody goes and has a chat with their friends and family about um break the stigma of periods Yay. and period products, everybody. Join us. Ne- join us. Join us next episode. Join us. Where we will hopefully learn about everything. Let's learn everything is a maximum fun podcast, hosted and produced by Ella Hubber, Tom Lunn, and Caroline Roper, with editing and music by the wonderful and talented Tom Lunn. This might not stay in, but it is really interesting. Um, <laughs> that's what he um, said. Looking at like your. That was great. I can't see Tom right now. Oh no. Oh. Took me. Took me a second. Really. <laughs> I hate you so much. I was laughing at my own joke before I could even get to it. Uh, oh, I was not looking at the screen, so I had no clue what was happening with you two. Oh, Did you God, hear my joke, Caroline? Because so... I'll say it again. Say it again for me. You Go said, on. you it's said, really that was, this might not stay in. And I said, that's what he says. No! <laughs> <laughs> uh, no! I'm really proud of myself. That was so quick of you. I'm really, really proud I of myself. I smell a cold outro joke there. Yeah. <laughs> that was uh, oh, we don't keep all that, we keep that for sure. Uh, so dumb. <laughs> Oh god. Thanks guys. Oh no. <laughs> Thanks. I'm be going now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my, my work is done here. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned, audience supported.